Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Um, uh, attention, attention. Uh, good, good day to you all. Uh, we have ways of making you talk. Listeners, welcome to another We Have Ways of Making You Chalk. Chalk Valley History Festival special edition. You, you really edition. should have done that in a, in a Chamberlain voice, shouldn't you? Well, I'm sorry we'll to, to say. I'm sorry to say, you are listening to We Have Ways of Making You, you Chalk. chalk. It's, not the, it's not the thing I hoped it was. In fact, it's all gone horribly wrong. <laughs> but there we are. <laughs> I tried my best, but I missed way, the bus. As an honest, as an honest broker. Um, anyway, um, why are we doing? Why are we doing Neville Chamberlain impressions? You may well ask. Well, very simply, uh, we are joined today um, for we have ways of making you chalk by Tim Bouvery, whose um, uh, gripping thriller appeasing Hitler uh, uh, came out a couple of years ago, which I read and absolutely loved, yep. and uh, would would it's thoroughly fantastic. recommend. And Tim, Tim, you came at the. I mean, it's a it's a it's a well told story this and certainly in the public imagination that the 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 story of appeasement is a is a well-told story how do you go with a thing what leads to war in in september 39 how do you approach that with with fresh history goggles how do you do that well um i have to say that the initial thought about it was that there was a at least going to be a fresh way of approaching it from a, a writing and narrative perspective even before i was certain that there might be some new material in archives. The 1930s, I think, is the greatest era of British diary writing since the 17th century. And reading all of these fantastic parliamentary diaries from Duff Cooper, Harold Nicholson and Chips Channon made me realise that you could, and all the fantastic diplomatic dispatches which were coming in, which were much richer and more colourful than anything that has been written since, that you could piece together a narrative which made the reader sort of experience the crises and dilemmas almost as if they were contemporaries themselves. And you could take somebody from the Prime Minister's breakfast table through to the telegram announcing Hitler's latest coup, next to the foreign correspondent in Berlin or on the German-Austrian border witnessing the mass throngs of uh, the German army marching into Austria or wherever it may be. And that and that seemed to me a fresh approach, at least from a storytelling perspective. Yeah, yeah. and let's not forget yeah, I, that actually, I mean, w- w- one, of the, one of the problems that, of, of history writing is that so much of it is incredibly academic and academic writing and, and popular narrative history are two entirely different types of history and a big fat Cambridge University press book with four million footnotes and endnotes and all the rest of it can be it has to be said a little bit dry on occasion and you know the best history if you really want to get people to um to read about the past you you've, you've got to make it a page turner you've got to make it good and and you know with all the human drama that we've got to, at our fingertips particularly in the 1930s and 1940s that shouldn't be that hard a task really i mean you know c- because it is really exciting and it is really gripping uh, and that's something that i think you absolutely nailed in your book i've got to say i mean it does read like a thriller uh, and you know you do get incredibly involved with all the 
different personalities. I think also that there is a historical justification for it, particularly as everyone knows how the, all history stories end, or most people do, very few people pick up a book, uh, even on something like the American Civil War, and wondering, oh, I'd like to read this because I don't know whether the North or the South wins. Uh, we know how it <laughs> ends, and that slightly colours often the way that people uh, write their history. And one of the compliments I was most happy to get from just general readers is that they said, by making it so contemporary and by talking about the doubts and the different paths and the many, 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 many failed attempts, appeasement as a policy is a series of multiple failed attempts of, of, of deals, of summits, of negotiations, is that people said that they did begin to wonder when, how the story ended, even though, of course, we know it ended in failure and the greatest war that the world's ever known. Although, although in, in the book, you end the story later than... Um, uh, cause, because I, I did, uh, 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 it, for part of my degree, I did the uh, cabinet papers and the foreign office telegrams 36 to 39 so and we ended on the 1st of September yeah. where the where the story supposedly ends you know that the, the story of you know appeasement really is written off at that that point is how we were is how we were studying it but you go into you go in, well into 1940 uh, um, beyond May don't you because you're basically saying that this government stays in the appeasers stay in so the way they conduct the war for the first for the first phase of the war the phony phase of the war is very much in the mould of the, the appeasement style, which is to try actually to avoid the confrontation if you possibly can, rather than prosecute the war. So you don't end. The, I mean, that's the interesting. You don't end where it where where one expects you to. No, I, I don't. Because I, I agree with what you just said. The real war for not just Britain, but for Europe, not the Far East, begins with the invasion of Norway and even more intensely with the invasion of Holland and Belgium in May 1940. And although appeasement was not actively being carried out between September 1939 and the fall of the Chamberlain government, there weren't official negotiations. The government didn't believe that it would be a complete war to the death. There was a certain sense that eventually Germany would be brought to the negotiating table. The economic blockade would cause a revolution in Germany like it had in the First World War and that this this a mass slaughter as had occurred between 1914 and 1918, could be avoided. Yeah, because because no rational actor would would want that to happen again. Which is the which is the <laughs> which is the uh, nub of the whole thing, isn't it? Which is the which is the nub of the entire <laughs> thing. Yeah, which is Chamberlain's starting point, really, isn't it? And and he has and he has political uh, 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 public approval, p- political approval within the Conservative Party, within the national government. It's it's not like it's not like he's off course when he. When he sets sail on a, on the route of appeasement, is it? No, absolutely not. And I say and very much acknowledge throughout that we can all understand and sympathise overwhelmingly with the desire to avoid another war against the same enemy a mere 20 years after the war to end all wars. The one slight nuance which I try and pick up in the book is I think people don't and historians haven't always understood the symbiotic relationship between the government and public opinion. People always talk about, oh, well, the government had to do this because public opinion was leading them in this direction. But actually, in the 1930s, the government had an incredible control over public opinion, such as which they definitely don't have today. There's no Twitter, there's no internet. There are very few independent sources of news. The BBC, the only broadcaster, is effectively a government mouthpiece. People who disagree with government policy, like Churchill, are banned from its airwaves during the 1930s. 
the newspaper proprietors are heavily lent on by the government. The Times is such an official organ, it seemed, of the British state that foreign chancelleries and leaders consider that anything that is printed in a Times leader to represent British government policy and to have been officially sanctioned. So there's this thing... There's this thing whereby Baldwin and Chamberlain are, yes, they're representing public opinion, but they're also sheltering behind it. And it's the it comes down to this whole question of leadership, which is as relevant today as it was then. Is the point of a leader just to be like the French radical following the crowd saying, those those are my people, I must lead them, so I must follow them? Or are you actually trying to lead public opinion? And what Churchill was trying to do during his wilderness years was to educate the British people and, as he famously said, tell the British people the truth about Nazi Germany. Um, can I, I quite like to go back to uh, back a little bit um, and talk about, I mean, how is it that that Chamberlain becomes prime minister and, and what's his what's his political journey? I mean, I mean, he's from Birmingham, isn't he? A, a famous family of Birmingham politicians and administrators i mean how, how does he end up in this position as city builders yeah yeah not just the most important family in birmingham the most important and significant political dynasty of the 20th century uh, neville chamberlain is the second son of joseph chamberlain the man who churchill said uh, made the political weather who carried out the unique feat of managing to split both the Conservative and the Liberal parties. <laughs> and But he wasn't meant to be a politician. His elder half-brother, Austin Chamberlain, was meant to be Conservative leader and Prime Minister, and indeed was both Foreign Secretary, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and leader of the Conservative Party, but he never became Prime Minister. In fact, he's the last Conservative leader of the opposition not to become Prime Minister until you've got to go to William Hague, that every other Conservative leader of the opposition did become Prime Minister. Well, that's a so, statistic and a half, isn't it? So Neville Chamberlain was actually meant to be the businessman of the family. His father had lost a huge amount of money and he's sent, not to Cambridge like his brother, to prepare to be a statesman. <clears throat> he's sent to study mathematics and metallurgy in a Birmingham sort of effectively Birmingham Polytechnic, what later became uh, Birmingham University, and then is sent out to the Bahamas where he has to try and grow sisal, which is this uh, textile, which is uh, like a hemp-like substance used for uh, making clothes and uh, other textiles. And he spends four years there with virtually no one to talk to and has an absolutely miserable time. And so Chamberlain... Chamberlain has had a series of failures by the time he enters politics, national politics, very late, at the age of 50. He's one of the latest prime ministers to enter the House of Commons. And he he was too old to fight in the First World War, but he had experience of it because he was Lord Mayor of Birmingham at that time. And his cousin Norman, whom he was absolutely devoted to, was killed in the First World War. And Chamberlain wrote a rather moving book, memorialising. It's the only book he ever wrote, memorialising his cousin. So... The First World War touched him, but he didn't experience it in the trenches like Churchill or indeed a lot of his other anti-appeasement uh, future colleagues. So then, so he, he enters Parliament, um, so if he's 79, so when is he, early 1920s he enters Parliament? Exactly, early 1920s, and then he has an incredibly swift rise, not least thanks to his half-brother Austin, who is in the Cabinet. And what really makes him is uh, this post-public uh, Minister of Health, and 
this is not the sort of Minister of Health that we think of now. The NHS doesn't exist, although Neville Chamberlain was very pro the idea of uh, some form of national health provision. It it covers everything. It covers local government. It covers all social welfare reform. It covers an enormous expanse. And, and Chamberlain is a really radical, liberal, reforming Minister of Health. And he this this is what makes him. He becomes hugely popular. And he always wants to do this. He's not a right winger. He he believes in state aid. He even when he becomes leader of the Conservative Party, he says he would love to change the name. He hates the name Conservative. He doesn't. He's really like his father. He considers himself a radical unionist. He is he's much less conservative and laissez-faire than his colleagues. He believes in state intervention to help the poor. And if he could have had his way, and if circumstances could have been different, he would have, I think, been a very significant, reforming, domestic prime minister. It's the tragedy of Neville Chamberlain that he becomes prime minister at a time when foreign affairs are going to dominate, which is very much not his area of expertise. Yeah. And and, and, he's, and then he becomes, he's Chancellor of the Exchequer, isn't he? Is, is he sort of, yep. is his first great officer 1935 he's and that, chancellor isn't he and that, and that's very much reflected in um a lot of his a lot of his thinking is is sort of chancellor thinking isn't it when certainly when you get to rearmament he because he's he's always bearing that in mind isn't he is, is uh, actually what the spend is and what the what what it's all going to cost and what also the economic uh, fruits of um rearmament might be when the moment comes so he's I mean, it is very interesting that he's late to politics but ascends quickly because you you could also argue that, as you say, foreign affairs isn't expertise, is that he's actually relatively inexperienced um, as, a, as a parliamentarian and as a, and as a, um, a, a frontline politician, arguably. I think it's slightly, that's slightly overdone. I think he has a massive apprenticeship to the premiership. He's becomes Chancellor of the Exchequer in the early 1930s and... This means he is actually by far the most significant figure of the government. Stanley Baldwin was um, famously uh, lethargic as a prime minister and his predecessor, uh, um, Ramsay MacDonald, uh, went, um, I mean, effectively gaga. He became completely senile. So Chamberlain is responsible for running the show and he gets involved in areas which are totally outside his domain, including foreign affairs. He tries very hard to suggest that Britain should affect a detente with Japan. He believes it's a great tragedy that the Anglo-Japanese alliance that has existed during the First World War has been allowed to lapse. And he makes great efforts to try and um, create an Anglo-Japanese alliance again in the 1930s. That fails. He takes upon himself, just because he says nobody else is taking responsibility for this, to oversee British rearmament and not just what should be spent, but what it should be spent on. The head of the military secretariat, Sir Maurice Hankey, and his advisers come up with this scheme whereby they say, well, we can only spend a certain amount. Uh, We're in the midst of the Great Depression, after all, on rearmament, so we should build up a massive expeditionary force, a pretty large navy, and then a fairly small air force. And Chamberlain, and this is, I think, historians would say to his credit and his foresight, completely reverses that. He says, no, we should have a massive air force, which we will use as a deterrent, we should have a large navy because we've got this empire and we we are not going to have an expeditionary force. Expeditionary force is so politically toxic after the memories of the Solomon Passchendaele that Ramsay MacDonald even bans the term from being used in government papers. And I think I think people give Chamberlain a lot of credit for this because the Air Force was the future and all that. But there but there are 
ironies in, in this and, and, and complications. One complication is he doesn't really choose the Air Force because he thinks it's the most makes the most strategic sense. He uses it because it chooses it because it's the cheapest and also because it's the most politically acceptable. He doesn't believe the British public will vote for a conservative government that says we're going to build up a large army to send your sons to fight in foreign fields again. But they might be happy with this idea of a distant war. If you have an air force, you're sending it away from away from Britain's shores. And so he gets to the right answer, but possibly for the uh, wrong but, reasons. But there are, there are other problems with having a large army. The lot, you know, if you have a large army, obviously you have to have conscription. Um, the other problem is if yeah. you have a large army, you've got to put them somewhere. You know, a large army is really large, whereas you can have quite a large air force without it being that large in terms of... Well, and also a, lar- a, large army, a large army signals an intention to fight a, a European land war. Well, also, may, th- it also then confuses... Which may set, set, off, set off your Europe, potential European enemies uh, yeah, into expanding as well. You know, that, that, uh, that is uh, also true. Sig- uh, signalling your intentions. Uh, but you've also then got to kind of work out how you're going to get your army from A to B, and, and that's fine if you're on yeah. the continent because you've got trains, but... If you're an island nation like Britain, it, it all starts getting a little bit more complicated because suddenly before you know where you are, your navy is doing, all it's doing is protecting and carrying and ferrying around your army rather than doing what it's supposed to do, which is sort of, you know, police the, the world's oceans and make sure that supplies can get across the Atlantic, you know, from the Atlantic. No, no, into and it's not, in the British tra- it's not in the British tradition, the, the strategy. Yeah. We, all think that, um, we all think that uh, because it happens so easily that the collapse of France in May, June 1940 was sort of inevitable. But the French still had the largest army and more tanks and armoured units than the the Germans at that stage. And so there was a a rather easy distribution of uh, resources and responsibilities. The British would uh, protect the seas and provide an air force, but the French army would hold the Germans on land. And that was the cornerstone, not just of Chamberlain's policy, but also of Churchill's policy. But but also, but, 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 you know, for for Chamberlain to, to stand up to the to the army chiefs in 1935, I, I you know, I still think that is quite... I mean, I, I know history has been quite nice to him about that bit of it, but I think that is justified. I mean, I really do. I mean, I think he, he was right. And for someone who's, whose forte is not foreign affairs and, and, and he doesn't have that kind of sort of martial background and martial interest in the same way that, that Churchill and many others do, you know, it's quite impressive. I mean, it strikes me that the, the real... F- you know, one of the big problems is 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 the lack of diplomacy. And I know sometime in the future you're getting onto diplomacy in the Second World War. But 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 do you think? I mean, it seems to me that 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 the, the problem is is that Hitler is able to knock out you know his potential enemies or, or or get his gains one by one. Whereas if there'd been a kind of wall of cast iron wall of 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 nations ringed around Nazi Germany, he would have never got off the starting blocks. I mean, you know, why wasn't there more effort to make a watertight alliance with Czechoslovakia, you know, um, with other other country, you know, all the all the um, Scandinavian countries at that time? Because it, it just doesn't seem to be the effort to make it, let alone kind of, I mean, I know obviously we did with, with Poland and, you know, all the rest of it, but, but why isn't are... that process started earlier? Because if you if if you had if if it had been Czechoslovakia, um, Scandinavian countries, Low Countries, France, you know, all reigned against Nazi Germany, he just wouldn't have been able to do that. It, it's the crucial question, and I think there are three big reasons why it doesn't happen. Uh, one is people always learning the wrong lessons from the last war, or misapplying the correct lessons to the next war or the the future next war. And what I mean in that sense is that. 
the British became convinced that the First World War had been caused by the interconnecting system of alliances, that these had all been triggered off one by one after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Therefore, uh, if you want to avoid another war, you must not have alliances. You must not have these yes. great big rival blocs which are always pushing each other to the brink. So that's one reason for not having uh, Don't make promises, alliances. don't get any, into any obligations. Yeah, no secret sort of treaties, no military plans, no train plans yeah. which are going to... Because after all, Belgian neutrality, is that's, that's a hangover from the 1830s, isn't it? And, a- absolutely. And, you know, you find yourself in this cataclysm because of that. You, so avoid at all costs. Right. Avoid at all costs. A, po- a bigger reason is that... That, which is, I think, the crux of the whole appeasement argument, is how do you evaluate Adolf Hitler and his aims? Because a lot of what he's doing in the early 30s, in fact, right up to 1938 or even 1939, seems taken of itself to be justifiable in some way. The Rhineland yeah. is German territory. There's yeah. this huge sense of guilt about Versailles and that the British should have never... And French should have never stopped the Germans from having some degree of military force, which was their pride and joy. So when, when the Germans begin to rearm, when they go into the Rhineland, when they start to talk about Austria, there's an, a total misconception that Austria is German. They speak German after all. Self-determination was the principle of uh, Woodrow Wilson at the P- Paris Peace Conferences. All of this can be justified. Even the Sudetenland, which was never part of Bismarck's Germany, it contains these three and a quarter million ethnic Germans. And all of these are in and of themselves justifiable, or there is a justification for them. So it all comes down to, do you just look at each one and say, yes, this is justifiable, we really can't go to war about this? Or do you look a bit deeper, as Churchill and others do, and say, well, what is really going on here? This is a rampant nationalist military state, which is not just going to stop at the Rhineland or Austria or Czechoslovakia. These are stepping stones on a plan for European hegemony. And if you take the Churchill thesis and the Van Sittart thesis, who's the uh, permanent uh, undersecretary at the Foreign Office, then yes, it is your duty to try and stop this man as soon as possible and um, build up that system of alliances. The, the, the final reason is, is, that they, is that, again, it comes back to this thing of public opinion, is that the British and French continually believe that their people will not support a war over what Chamberlain famously described as a faraway country, of which we know nothing. So, and that counts for, well, certainly counts for the Rhineland, which was German territory. It counts for Austria, which seems to welcome the Germans when they uh, march in. It seems to count for uh, the Sudetenland as well. So you've got to take a much more penetrating analysis of Hitler and his motives to become convinced that alliances are the way forward. I mean, it's it's very interesting when hearing hearing you that famous phrase, a faraway land of which we know nothing. Hearing that again, when the given that James and I have been talking um, over the, over the, since we started about how you really have to place the British um, uh, uh, war strategy in an imperial context, and when you when you think of it like that, British British strategic policy is always about faraway lands of which we know nothing. So for Chamberlain yeah, but also, to, to, you know, Czechoslovakia is over the hill compared to kind of Burma. Well, but that's the point. That's exactly the point. That's exactly where I'm going with this. So for him to, to, to play that card from the deck, you think, well, hold on a minute. You know, we've we've been we, we've we British history is about is fighting wars in places that people know, know nothing about due to in order to protect British um, or, or, or British hegemony or to ensure that you don't find an, another hegemon in the world. Right. 
And so for him, to, I mean, when, you, when you say it like that, in the context that James and I have been talking the last few months, it sounds ridiculous. Um, uh, Completely uh, ridiculous. And coming from the son of one of the greatest British imperialists that there ever of was. Of course. Of course. It, it, it's, and, and a prime minister who is uh, overseeing territories stretching from the Far East to Canada, big, to the, South Africa, to the well, The Bahama. biggest the empire is... Exactly, the biggest the empire has ever been because of the post First World War settlement. I mean, it's it. So, but it's it's, 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 it's a justification. It it's a justification. It's a, it's a kind of you know he knows he's you know he he knows he's been a bit weak. He knows it's bullshit. He knows it's yes. bullshit. Yes. Well, not does. quite, not quite. I just disagree with you. I'm just on this one thing. I think yeah, <laughs> no, it's you a disagree as much as you liked him. <laughs> it's a pretty disgraceful. It's a pretty disgraceful phrase. Faraway country taken in a literal sense. But he wasn't the only one to say this. There was a huge, there was a, there were two schools of thought. There was a, and two schools of historical thought, one of which all the conservative isolationists kept on saying that the bones of a British grenadier are not worth Czechoslovakia, that that Eastern and Central Europe had never been British concerns. We're a maritime and imperial power. And what goes on in these countries, Czechoslovakia had only been created in 1918. Are we really going to go into a world war for this hodgepodge of Czechs, Ruthenians, Slovakians, Poles, Magyars? I mean, everything, this um, cauldron of different nationalities in Eastern Europe. So they say it's not our concern. If Germany wants Central and Eastern Europe, fine. And loads of people say this. The Times says it. There are people like the future historian E.H. Carr, who wrote the famous book, yep. What is History, who was in yeah, the Foreign yeah. Office at the time, says, yeah, if, if Hitler um, wants to have Eastern and Central Europe, let him. It's no problem for us. It's not going to affect our interests. And that that's a really dominant school of thought. The counterthought, which people with a better sense of history, which uh, I think include Churchill and Duff Cooper and others make, and Duff Cooper says it in the cabinet in front of Chamberlain is there's an older strand of British foreign policy and that is to prevent any one power from dominating the continent and that's why we as England fought against Louis the 14th in the 17th century it's why we opposed the French Revolution and Napoleon in the 18th and 19th centuries it's why we opposed the Kaiserreich in the early 20th century and it's and it is the reason why we eventually stood up to the Third Reich in the 20, 20th century I think that Poland is is again is another faraway country. We don't go to war over Poland because it's somehow a more intrinsic strategic interest than Czechoslovakia, or because the German claims on it are more unfounded. On the contrary, German claims to Poland are stronger than they are to Czechoslovakia because yep. the Versailles Treaty has carved out and separated East Prussia from the rest of Germany. It happens because when is this? They suddenly work out that this guy is not going to stop, and we've got to draw the line somewhere, and we're going to draw it at yeah. Poland. So Poland essentially offers the Western powers a pretext in that, and 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 that's how the war then plays out. It's nothing's done about Poland. Nothing's yeah, I wouldn't say pretext. I say deterrent. They think we've got to. We've tried giving him what he wants and hoping that he'll be satisfied. He's not satisfied. We'll tell him that he will face a war against France and the whole British Empire if he takes yeah. one more step forward and hope that that stops him. Hold that thought, Tim. Um, uh, we're going to take a break right now. Uh, Tim's book, by the way, Appeasing Hitler with Bodley Head, um, came out in paperback in March, just before lockdown. So we're doing our bit for the promotional trail right now. See you in a tick. Hi. 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Chalk. See what we did there? It's genius, isn't it? Uh, we're talking to Tim Bouvery, um, author of Appeasing Hitler, um, a sort of fresh personal history of the story of Chamberlain and appeasement. Um, one thing I'm interested in is, is that, uh, you know, I, I totally take on board what you're saying, Tim, about, about the domination of the government over the press. But, you know, it's something like 92% of the population are against war in 1938. Do you think that is something that the government could have turned around, even you know when it's so so strong? I mean, you know, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, no prime minister is going to go to war when ninety percent of the population are against it, are they? Well, I don't, I don't know that statistic about the ninety percent of the population. But opinion polls were in their infancy; they only came in in nineteen thirty-seven. There's and there's mass observation. It shows that certain people throughout the Czech crisis, throughout the summer of nineteen thirty-eight became more and more and more uneasy with what uh, Hitler was doing and what the government uh, was doing. Earlier on, when the Germans go into the Rhineland, Harold Nicholson writes, well, of course, this is a move that we should stop Hitler over, but we can't do it because of public opinion. There'd be a general strike if we even suggested it. Well, actually, in September 1938, Britain really does nearly go to war in a crucial week when people are digging trenches in yeah. Hyde Park and trying on yeah. gas masks. There is no mass. So you think panic. they would have accepted? There is no. I think it would have it would have divided opinion much more than uh, it would have happened in September 1939. I think we would have we would have not necessarily had the Dominions, particularly South Africa, with us at that stage initially. But I think yeah. there's no evidence to say that there would have been a strike or an inability to do it. I think people thought certainly after Chamberlain's first two flying visits to Hitler, there was no doubt that this man was trying to do everything he could for peace. Nobody thought that Britain was being uh, warmongerish about 
the situation at all. And there, it did, war did become very close. Chamberlain was faced down by the cabinet and if it was Hitler that buckled and invited him to Munich. Chamberlain didn't invite himself to Munich. If Hitler hadn't buckled, then I think there were very few ways out for the British government, the war, and the population seemed to be, uh, I think, happy, to, not happy to go along with it, but more resigned to it. Just, just crucially on this public opinion point, it's very interesting to see how swiftly public opinion swings against opini- appeasement before Hitler marches into the rest of Czechoslovakia in March 1939. The government start to lose by-elections. They, uh, it, in, in the autumn of 1938 and the British public are particularly shocked by Kristallnacht and Mm. all the indications of public opinion are that yes Munich might have been necessary but it's not something to celebrate it's celebrated it's not so much celebrated when Chamberlain comes back as it's relief rather than this was something honourable to have done yeah yeah well there's a palpable feeling right in the heart of government about that though isn't there that that, that this is this there's nothing glorious about this this is a uh, a, a, a narrow squeak, really, isn't it? Is, is how it's seen. And then, of course, there's the there's the uh, idea that 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 it buys it buys the the, the British time. Is that because uh, uh, one of the one of the things that's sort of laid at, laid in Chamberlain's defence is well, he bought us time, and he bought us time to rearm. And had he had had he not pursued uh, uh, appeasement the way he did, we would have gone to war at the wrong at the wrong moment. Is the is the because I, I don't know if there is a right moment necessarily because what can britain do in 1937 when it nearly goes to war anyway about 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 germany because there is no bef at that point because there's the, the from march 39 there's the scramble to get things sorted so that you can fight a war in europe it, it, it what, what do you make of that chart the, the idea that chamberlain buys because it's the thing churchill says it's a thing churchill says uh uh at Chamberlain's funeral, isn't it, James? He says he yep. bought us the time we needed and he, and he did his damnedest. What do you think about that? Well, Churchill was being very generous to Chamberlain in his funeral oration, mainly for <laughs> political reasons and therefore not entirely genuine. <laughs> <laughs> I think this argument about buying extra time is one of the great canards. It's, it's completely ahistorical. Firstly, Chamberlain never made it himself. It definitely Britain's lack of armaments weighed on his mind but he never said that or accepted that war was somehow inevitable and therefore Britain needed to buy time. On the contrary uh, when his uh, closest advisers Sir Horace Wilson and Alec Douglas Hume the future prime minister who is was his parliamentary private secretary are asked about this once war has broken out they say it was only fair to say that the point the point of appeasement was not to delay war it was to avoid war for all times. And the evidence that Chamberlain believed that is abundant when he comes back from the Munich Agreement. There are people like the Foreign Secretary Lord Halifax, who's suddenly been converted from arch appeaser to reluctant resister, who say to him, in effect, well, look, you've been very lucky. This was a narrow squeak. You've been very lucky this time, but this is not Hitler's last territorial demand. This is not peace for our time, as you famously have said now out of the Downing Street window. There are going to be more demands and we must massively expedite and accelerate rearmament. And Chamberlain refuses. And there's very, very little that is done to increase British rearmament in the autumn and winter of 1938. It's only in 1939 that under severe cabinet pressure that begins to increase and then significantly increases after the German invasion of Czechoslovakia. The other great problem with it is that if you're looking at the 
total figures of what the British and the Germans achieved in this so-called breathing space, this extra year, it's very obvious that the Germans managed to outarm the British in the air uh, and in uh, terms of tanks and uh, other equipment for their army. So in relative terms, the British are not better off by in armaments by the time of September 1939. Yes, they've got the Spitfire and the Hurricane and Radar, all of which are absolutely crucial, but the Germans have managed to acquire an enormous number amount of material from Czechoslovakia, many tanks of which are used in the invasion of France in May 1940. And, and then the final point is Britain is strategically much weaker in September 1939 for the crucial reason that the Munich Agreement effectively forfeited the real opportunity for, if there was one, and it remains one of the most contentious points of this period, for Anglo-Soviet or Anglo-French-Soviet cooperation because it convinces Stalin that the British and the French will continue to always give in to Hitler, and he shortly afterwards uh, sacks his foreign minister, who's the pro-West, pro-democracy Litvinov, and points the very pro-German Molotov, and you can see him moving slowly towards the Soviet-German pact, which uh, leads to the outbreak of the Second World War. Yeah, uh, do, I mean, do you think do you think the British ever had a had a a, a proper chance with the with the Soviets? Do you think there was a the, 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 because after all, Ch- Chamberlain's constrained, isn't he, by an appetite for doing a, a lack of appetite for doing a deal with the Soviets, which comes from all quarters uh, and his own. Um, the, the, how uh, and the the mission is famously un, regard uh, unserious, going going by boat and not oh, really. Oh yeah, that's no, sort of uh, a complete shower, isn't it? Uh, uh, it, it, it and it. Uh, is, is it, are we right to consider it as, as an unserious attempt to bring the Soviets in on the Western side? Or is it just it was muffed? It's certainly an, an unserious attempt from Chamberlain's perspective. When, yeah. when th- this is in 1939, this is the British belatedly decide that they have to have an agreement with the Soviet and Union. And they, go with, a fr- well, they after, go with a joint French delegation, don't they? And they go on the, on a this joint French delegation. Old ship and this, and this is... After after the German invasion of Czechoslovakia, so this is in 1939. Chamberlain is really forced into this by public and parliamentary opinion. Whenever it hits a snag, whenever the Soviets are causing difficulties in the preparation for this mission going to Moscow, Chamberlain writes to his sisters that he's completely delighted because he considers the Soviet Union the devil anyway, and he's very happy for these negotiations to collapse. He doesn't take it tragically at all uh, when they do collapse. But I think there was far less of an opportunity for the British and the Soviets to come together after the Munich Agreement than before. Whether or not the Soviet Union would have actively come to the aid of Czechoslovakia is, I think, the greatest what-if of the appeasement period. The only thing we can say for certain is that the Foreign Minister Litvinov continually and publicly stated that the Soviet Union would abide by the terms of the Soviet-Czechoslovak alliance, which is that they would support them in battle, provided that the French intervened first. They, the, Soviet, the Red Army did undergo a partial mobilisation of 300,000 men in September 1938. They had promised the Czechs 1,000 aeroplanes immediately. Who knows? There are lots of very good reasons for distrusting Stalin. And Chamberlain is not totally wrong about the, the the need to distrust Stalin. Where, where he's completely wrong is the idea that you can trust Hitler. Um, it's uh, which doesn't which doesn't <laughs> yeah. which doesn't work. So, 
I think at the very least, you're not the bind trying to bind the Soviet Union into an alliance over the Czech crisis would have at least meant that they wouldn't have gone into the German camp and not going into the German camp and therefore uh, allowing the Germans to move west without the fear that they can be attacked in their rear by the Soviet Union, which has always been the nightmare scenario for the German high command is a, is a significant factor. To, to step out of the, the history itself, appeasement has since become the sort of diplomatic, not bogeyman is the wrong, well, Chamberlain's become a diplomatic bogeyman, hasn't he? And, and the story of appeasement has been politically recycled since. You know, the Suez crisis is a product of what you try to do when you're trying to not appease someone, if you see <laughs> what I mean. And, and appeasement was cited in both Gulf Wars, as a thing that the West absolutely has to avoid doing. And again, we're in the political arena here rather than necessarily the historical arena. And what, what we understand appeasement as being um, uh, has changed over those years and fluctuated. But uh, do we, I mean, is, Ed, is Eden, is his an honest assessment of appeasement? Because after all, he resigned over it. Is, is, is 56 with Suez, is that a, um, I'm just the legacy of appeasement is, I think, the thing I want to try and touch on. You're totally right. I think that there's one consistent thread that goes from appeasement in the 30s to Suez to the yeah. both Gulf Wars. Yeah. And indeed, you could talk yeah. about Cuba in the 60s. You could talk about Vietnam. You could talk about all sorts of other things. Putin and Putin and now. what goes wrong yeah. with this? And this is the consistent failure to truly understand with whom you're dealing and to somehow equate them with someone who they're not. Yeah. Uh, Anthony Eden, foreign secretary in the 1930s, is not nearly strong enough about standing up to uh, the dictator states, and particularly Germany, as he later claimed and as his myth uh, maintains. Uh, his, um, yeah. his memoirs of the period are called Facing the Dictators, but uh, A.J.P. Taylor said um, it's not so much facing the dictators, he made faces at the dictators. That's as, <laughs> as much as he was prepared to do. He's rather haunted by this idea that he didn't do enough when he was foreign secretary at the time of the Rhineland yep. to stop it. And so suddenly when he then becomes prime minister, he thinks, right, well, we know what to do now. We know we go in hard. We go in early and we don't need other people. We show strength. The, why, why does it go wrong? It goes crucially wrong because you do need other people and Britain's situation has changed. But also NASA was not Hitler. He was not even a danger, really, to British interests. He didn't seize the Suez Canal. He nationalised it. And this leads to one of the greatest humiliations of British foreign policy. Similarly, certainly in 2003, Saddam Hussein was not Adolf Hitler. Both he and Nasser have moustaches like Hitler, but that's about it. I mean, these are dictators <laughs> with moustaches. <laughs> well, big, bigger moustaches, much bigger tashes than Hitler. Big, big moustaches, but... The only reason people are prepared to attack Saddam Hussein in 2003 is because he actually doesn't really pose a great danger to the West. We, we can go in without the sense that he has weapons of mass destruction. I mean, he's hardly even a danger to the region by 2003. So it's this continual uh, idea of um, get, of putting the wrong motives and equating, making the wrong historical comparisons. Saddam Hussein, extraordinarily nasty, brutal dictator responsible for the killing of his own people, uh, was not Adolf Hitler, nonetheless, and uh, nor was uh, President Nasser. Yeah, uh, uh, and yet our politicians, um, when they need to make a case, fall back yeah, on what people uh, think over and over. Of the people yeah, well, think that's of also the because a lot of it, it casts a yeah, long yeah, shadow. Also, because a lot of our politicians don't don't read enough history. I mean, I know Boris famously does classics and all the rest of it, but um, but but you know, 
They don't. I mean, you know, the, and you see, you see these completely crass mistakes, historical mistakes coming up in political statements all the time. I mean, whether it's French ex-French diplomats or whether it's David Cameron in 2010 talking about playing second fiddle to the Americans in 1940. I mean, it's just it's 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 unbelievably crass. What what did the failure of appeasement do to Chamberlain's uh, self-belief? Because by the time w- war starts in 1939, he's he's failed, hasn't he? In, in, he's fa- in he the policy failed. where he said, "Leave this to me," it's because he because he very much he very much pins his own reputation on it. He thinks it's a thing that he's by force of his person, dint of his personality, he's going to be able to get a result. What does it do to him? Because I mean, what- I don't think he's a dead man walking, but he has lost a lot of confidence. I, I think, just to rewind just a tiny bit, people have this wrong idea of Neville Chamberlain as somehow a weak prime minister who was terrified of war and was hell-bent on surrendering everything to Hitler. This this is completely untrue. Chamberlain was one of the toughest and most powerful prime ministers that this country has ever had. He had not just a vast parliamentary majority, which allowed him to do pretty much whatever he wanted, but he had incredible self-belief. There are, we probably don't have time to go into it now, but I think there are an awful lot of similarities between him and Margaret Thatcher. He quotes in his letters to which ni- a comparison which neither of them would be happy with. Uh, he quotes in his letters to his, church, to his sisters uh, the quotation from the Earl of Chatham, which is that I know that I can save the country and no one else can. And although she, they were ghostwritten, this is the quotation that appears at the top of Margaret Thatcher's memoirs. It's this incredible self-belief and dogmatism that prevents either of them from listening to other people. Nevertheless, he, his policy has failed by... March 1939, very obviously, when the Munich Agreement is torn up and the Germans march into Czechoslovakia. He has a wobble, but he he still continues to believe that right up until the outbreak of war, that war may be avoided. One of the most exciting uh, documents I found during my research was an unknown Chamberlain letter uh, written to the Duke of Buccleuch on the 30th of August. So four days before war broke out, he says... um, I still have hopes that we will avoid the worst. And if so, I look forward to an opportunity to come up to Scotland and go after your grouse. He's still thinking that he's going to be able to go grouse shooting at this stage or possibly. Uh, but then I think once war does begin, he's he's miserable. He hates war, unlike Churchill, who is exhilarated by it. And when the Royal Oak is sunk at Scarpa Flow, he writes to his sister that he's deeply miserable about this. He He can't bear the idea of sacrifice. I mean, th- and this is this is possibly one of the problems, one of the great problems that he has prior to the war, which is that however much everyone with any sense and compassion would want to avoid war, if you are prime minister of what was still at least nominally the, the leading, if not or one of the leading powers in the world with an empire that covers a quarter of the globe, it has to be more than just a uh, deterrent. It has to be the possibility of leading your country to war has to exist. And you as prime minister have to have a responsibility to accept that. And Chamberlain almost is incapable of that. He is almost an actual, even if if he wouldn't admit to it, but he is almost a pacifist in his utter abhorrence of war and his unwillingness to sacrifice lives, which is a wonderful uh, and compassionate thing to be, but not a quality that you want if you're British prime minister. Well, uh, Tim, this has been absolutely fantastic, fascinating. Because we, uh, you know, it comes up a lot, Chamberlain. But to do a proper to do a proper dive on him um, uh, has been yeah, really, t- really, really, really excellent. It's, it's been it's about time we were kind of sort of uh, yeah. properly educated in, in 
all matters, Chamberlain. Um, no, it's been fantastic, Tim. Re- really, really has been good. And um, I should also just add that you are, of course, the, the son of the um, Chalk Valley History Festival director, Jane. And, um, um, you know, I'm only sorry that you weren't going to be, you know, you weren't going to be speaking this week in a lovely green field surrounded by chalk downlands. But, you know, what can you do? It, it's it will pass next day. year, next year. Another time. Well, thank thank you so much, Tim. Um, uh, we hope uh, you've all enjoyed listening to that. Um, incredibly illuminating. Uh, thanks again, Tim Bouvery. Thank you. Cheerio. Cheerio. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. It was great to be talking to Tim about Chamberlain & Co and appeasement. Um, But I just want to remind you that tonight we have got the Chalk Valley History Show uh, being broadcast live on YouTube Premiere at 7.30pm. And tonight's show we've got... Andrew Zeminski talking about the stonemason. Uh, we've got Tracy Borman, Dan Snow. Uh, we've got a day in the life of the history tellers. And we've got uh, a day in the life of an English Civil War soldier and much more besides. So do tune in. Um, you can find that on the Chalk Valley History Festival website, cvhf.org.uk. That's cvhf.org.uk.